there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from a little bit of a break, guys. I haven't had a break for so long, and it was kind of nice. It was kind of by force, actually, because I took a trip to the other side of the United States, to Alaska. And as you might imagine, I didn't have very good connectivity. Like, it was off the grid. So I'm happy to report it was beautiful. It was awesome. I hope to bring you some interviews from that phase, but we are back. I'm back in Brooklyn, and I am happy to introduce this guest that I've known for so long, but from a close distance, (laughs) if you want to call it that. He is a leadership and education expert, mentor, super connector, and networking guru, a persistent link between people and their dreams. He has conducted school reviews and training for teachers and principals on three continents, North America, South America, and Africa, working to increase the number of quality schools and leaders available to low-income children worldwide. He has been a leader in the education sector for 20 years and has more recently pivoted in the direction of sports management. Coming from a family known for professional athletes, he is no stranger to sports and operations. He was an All-American high school and collegiate runner at Georgetown University. Woo, 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 go Hoyas! (laughs) And he went on to run as an Olympic hopeful before hanging up his spikes to focus on giving back to the communities that raised him. Also known as an advocate for social justice education he has been nicknamed by some no justice no peace and that is the no as in the knowledge in that statement mr kai adderley welcome to the podcast thank you so much thank you for having me yay so let's get started my first question always is where are you from where are you local and what is your craft Awesome. So I am actually back where I am from (laughs) after 25 years of of being in other places. uh, I'm back in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Germantown area to be exact, where I spent a large part of my childhood. Uh, My grandparents lived in Germantown. I grew up in Mount Airy. And after my time abroad, did a short stint back in New York and then decided to Come on home to Philly. Okay. <laughs> and so that's, so you're local. And I am, I am. That's where you're local. That's where you're from. It's full circle. And what would you say is your craft? So my craft uh, really is connecting with people. I have a passion for people and, and getting to know them and connecting them to their dreams, uh, which is a big part of my dream, just getting to know people and working with them on on what they're in love with, and it, and it really drives me. So I more specifically look at that through the lens of my you know nine to five career, which has mostly been in education, as you mentioned, uh, all levels of education, you know, from teacher to leader, consultant, and also the pivot that you mentioned, the sports world. Mm-hmm. So connecting people in those two places and with each other, because I do think that they weave together very nicely. Yeah, yeah. As a scholar athlete. Um, yes. I, so, <laughs> so, so I I remember that you were an athlete and I also was a track athlete. So yeah. I got I to gotta go into a little bit of the sport since you mentioned it first. But yes. we'll, we'll get back to it a little bit. So what was your sport? So, yeah, I mean, as a kid, I, you know, played everything. Fell in love with basketball, actually, and mm. just... Always wanted to play basketball all the time. I still do, but being 48 years old now, my body tells me (laughs) there are better choices to make in life. Um, 
But at an early age, around, you know, 12 and 14 years old, uh, I started being very successful in track. Number one in the country, I was breaking national records. So it kind of gravitated to be my dominant sport. Sure. Uh, My parents believe that running is something that you need to do because it, one, helps in all sports, uh, being fast and Mm -hmm. mobile. Mm-hmm. Two, it's something that you can do well up into your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah. Uh, it's exercise you can you can do forever. So it was something that we did not have a choice. We had to run track. And it <laughs> ended up being, you know, a great passion of mine and yeah. took me to many places in life and the world. So Right. So what was your event? Uh, I ended up specializing in the 800 meters. Um, wow. Once I got to the okay. Collegiate that's a, level. That's a goddess sport. <laughs> so my, my track coach is my, my high school track coach. He would always say, goddess, goddess, goddess. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the 800 will get you. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Exactly. Um, exactly. But, you know, I ran really from the, as a, as a teenager, I ran the 400. One up to, you know, cross country 5K. Sure, of course. Uh, but 800 was where I found my success at the collegiate and post-collegiate level. Sure. And now I just run as far as my body will let me. Yeah, that's me too. <laughs> Stay in me shape. Too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I was a triple jumper, so yeah. the jumps were my thing. But like you, I did all, all kinds of events up until yeah. college and right then you specialize. So yeah, that's so awesome. That you mentioned that you were an 800 runner. The 800 has since, you know, when I was running, it's become a sprint. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's a sprint. It is, and so it and, and, and when you were running it, you were a sprint. So I just have I have so much respect for the 400 runners and the 800 runners because that is an endurance sprint. I think it translates so well into the life that you eventually made for yourself. And so can you think of some of the analogies or some of the, the ways of thinking in track that have translated into your successes as an educator, first and foremost, and as a, a leader? Yeah, I mean, I think that is my story, right? Mm-hmm. When I tell it and when I talk about it and, you know, when I realized that everything that I had learned from what I was in love with, which obviously, you know, was sports. Um, I was, you know, I loved, 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 loved and still do being competitive and playing sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you learn life lessons, mm-hmm. right? You learn how to win. You learn how to lose. You learn to take care of your body. You learn what makes you, you know, at your best. You, you learn when you're not at your best and you still have to push through. So, so, so many, I mean, I can probably talk for the rest of the day and definitely the rest of this conversation just about the lessons in leadership, the lessons in, you know, winning, losing, being passionate about something. And then how do you go about displaying that to yourself or mm-hmm. revealing that to yourself and to the world? And I used to have mentors and other people in my life who sometimes would say things to me like, you know, you must not be that serious about the sport. And I say, what? You know, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean? I love it. And they say, well, if you loved it, you know, people that love it go above and beyond. People that love it don't make excuses. People that love it find a way when there's not a way to continue, you know, in that craft. Mm-hmm. So, so it really became like a life mantra, right? If, mm-hmm. if I say that I am in love with running or this sport, you know, then nothing's going to stop me from doing the mm-hmm. things that I need to do so that I can be the best that I need to be and stay in love. You know? yeah. So, yeah, you know, I challenge a lot of folks in my life now in terms of 
you know, the leadership coaching and development that I do or just young kids in general mm -hmm. that are working in, on something that they love. And, and, you know, there's always obstacles. There's always going to be obstacles. That's sure. really part of life. Yeah. You learn that as a adult quickly. Yeah. And, and as a young adult too. Right? <laughs> as a young exactly. adult, you know, exactly. you graduate from college, you're like, whoa, yeah, wait like, a minute. Yeah, right. What okay. is this? You know, it's right. always something, you know, as soon as you yep. pay the bill, there's another bill. As soon yeah. as, you know, you get the car fixed, there's another issue. So, <laughs> you know, perseverance is probably one of the biggest words that I, I take from my life in sports. But again, you know, it was the love for sports and the blend and weaving of the world of education into the world of sports that I fell in love with. Sure. So let's talk about how you, young man from Philly, graduated from Georgetown. Yes. You know, you're, you're still working on this athletic thing. How did you then decide that education was where you were going to land? And tell us a little bit more about that journey um, moving to New York. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I didn't, I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would be a teacher. I never thought it. You know, I grew up in a family where, you know, my mom and my father both uh, were in the social work education space, working in schools, working in boys and girls clubs and, and the such. So it was always around me. I had family members, you know, my sister ended up being a lifelong educator and teacher, mm -hmm. my older sister. So, it was around me, but I just never thought that was my way. And what happened was people around me, I think, started identifying the attributes and characteristics that they saw in me that they thought would lend itself nicely to, to you know, a teaching career. Mm -hmm. And I still didn't care what they thought. <laughs> and I was, you know, there was no way. I was like, like huh? I just never considered it. You know, as an athlete, you're thinking, you know, most athletes think that their life is going to be filled with, you know, gold medals and sure. Super Bowl rings and yeah. NBA championships and mm -hmm. not understanding as a kid what small percent of people even, you know, move on to Division One sports and yeah. get the opportunity to be a professional and then mm -hmm. the professionals, you know, that don't win. So, you know, you're always chasing something. But anyhow, you know, the mentors and coaches and people around me always saw these attributes. And it was, you know, I, I can identify probably my college coach, Frank Gagliano, who, you know, named me captain of the track team. And it was not because, you know, I was the best runner or anything. That was because of my relationship with my teammates. And I was mm -hmm. constantly modeling and leading and encouraging them all the time. You know, whether it was folks that were in my events or different events, it didn't matter. It was just something I loved to do and continue to do. And I was at practice early and I would stay late and I was always talking to somebody about, mm. you know, their craft and learning from them to try to, you know, help myself as well, but also sure. sharing what I knew to try to help them. Yep. And so people, again, around me would see this and say, oh, you know, Kai's always teaching, always preaching, always, mm. you know, involved in other folks journey as well. And so it, w it was my coaches and my mentors that kind of led me on that path and asked me to share my stories sure. and my thoughts with teammates. Yeah. And then it was an actual friend uh, who has passed now. And she was a Georgetown student and she was a teacher and she would always say to me, like, you should, you know, teach, you should teach. And I'm like, get out of my face. <laughs> I'm not teaching. <laughs> like, how much do they make again? Like, right, right. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, once I realized that I was not going to, well, I shouldn't say 
realized that I wasn't going to be an Olympic champion, but you know, I never became the Olympic gold medalist, sure. even though I tried, sure. um, you know, thinking about what everybody thinks about, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And one day, you know, she came to me, uh, Maya, and she said, look, you know, there's this organization, Teach for America, you know, and you can teach and you don't have to have a teaching certificate or anything like that. You can teach. Yeah. Yeah. And I started thinking about my life and, you know, how I got to Georgetown and how, you know, the experience of being captain for for several years on the team. Mm. And I was awarded an extra year of eligibility to run. Oh. Uh, so I had a fifth year. And during that fifth year, I still graduated in four years. But yeah. in my fifth year, I joined the School of Continuing Studies mm. uh, for a master's degree. That's typical what happens with yeah. uh, red-shirted athletes. So yeah. anyhow, during that time, I got to select my classes. And all of the classes I picked from the what was available often were classes in social and public policy. And I started reading, you know, and taking these classes. And I was actually had a part time job at Georgetown's Public Policy Institute. Mm. And I was working for a gentleman who was writing a chapter in a book called the it was the white black test score gap. Okay. And I started to read, you know, a lot of the articles and footnotes. And I started to think like, man, this is these articles are very similar to my experience growing up. In Philadelphia, I went to public school. Um, I was awarded a scholarship to a private school and then finished up my high school career back in the public school system at a, at a magnet school. And so I had these three experiences of school before I got to Georgetown. And I looked at my, you know, friends all from, you know, Philadelphia that were in the public school system who, you know, the public school system here traditionally has struggled greatly. Yeah. yeah. And, and so reading these articles and books, I said, wow, like, this is my life. Like this, this, these are, they're telling the story of my life and, Mm. you know, how I made it out of, you know, the Philadelphia public school system. And yes, Mm -hmm. sports was part of it. uh, But also my, my time in private school was, was part of it as well. And growing up with, uh, you know, educated parents was part Mm -hmm. of it as well. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. looking at all these factors and saying like, wow, you know, my dad was the first in his family to, to go to college. And so like looking at these factors, I started to realize that I wanted to help change the policy. I said, you know, these policies are terrible. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I was going to go into policy and I, you know, got, got my degree. I graduated. I hung up my spikes and I said, all right, I'm going to do this policy work. And I started my first assignment was to help a charter school actually write their discipline policy. Oh, wow. It was a brand new charter school in D.C. Okay. Okay. And, you know, I'm spending all summer reading and, you know, getting this policy down and I wrote it up, you know, and handed it over to the school. And then I said to one of my colleagues or or manager, I said, okay, well, now when do we go to the school and like help them, you know, implement this and et cetera. They said, no, 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 that's that's their job. We write it. (laughs) And I said, well, what kind of job is that? I said, that's ridiculous. I said, you know, that's like running and never get to race in the meet, you know? And and, and so I instantly was like, I'm not doing this ever. Like, this is terrible. Policy is the worst. Uh, So I said, you know what? I will, I will sign up for this Teach for America thing Mm -hmm. because I wanted now to see, you know, if these policies and ideas that I had in my head about school culture could go from paper to execution, you know, at the school level. So I joined Teach for America. 
and, and taught sixth grade in Washington, D.C. So this is where our stories really come together is um, I did Teach for America in D.C. as well. And I taught at yep. Paul, Paul Junior High School. Where did you teach? So I was at Bruce Monroe Elementary Monroe. School. Monroe. OK. Uh, OK. Yes. Bruce Monroe is now a park. <laughs> well, the, the building <laughs> is now a park. City Park. Uh, we were right up the street from Howard University. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, all of all, of, you know, life is such a beautiful journey. Uh, the Alchemist is one of my favorite books. Mm. And mm-hmm. when you just think about all of the experiences you have along the way and how they shape and direct the path. Yeah. You know, Bruce Monroe being a couple of steps away from Howard University really dictated, you know, a lot of what happened afterwards. So, you know, it was a great it was a great experience. I taught for four years there, mm-hmm. sixth grade, mm-hmm. have many, many stories. I can go into yeah. some if you like, but <laughs> I'm sure, you know, you can so imagine many, so many of the DC young ones. Yes. <laughs> so in the classroom, you did your thing with the sixth graders and then you were thinking about what's next. Right. So then how did you determine or how did how did that next crystallize for you? Because you said you could tell many stories. I can remember when I knew that, well, you know, it's a two year commitment. I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school. But a big part of that graduate school drive was, funny enough, policy, because I felt like I needed to be more involved with telling or creating the frameworks for my families to do better. Right. Right. So mom, dad, grandpa, whomever was taking care of my kids, they didn't have jobs. They didn't have service. They didn't have the things that I felt were necessary to make this experience in the classroom to be optimized for for their their children or for their their grandchildren or what have you. So then for you, what was it that triggered in your mind? Okay, I'm I'm not going to be in the classroom anymore. I need to move to the next level. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, you know, I'll probably mention and reference the alchemist so many times Mm. because I really trust the journey. Mm. And while we all have passions and I have ideas and thoughts about how things will go, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times they don't go the way you think they should or (laughs) will. Right, right. So what I've been really good at understanding is that Mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, life comes in all different forms and speeds, right? Mm -hmm. And you need to be able to have the mental aptitude to prepare yourself for whatever's coming. So so again, yes, I have goals and dreams, but I never thought about the far-reaching next step because I was so present in what was going on. And when I got called to teach, I really believe it was a calling. You know, I didn't really like seek out, like, how do I become a teacher? You know, it was sure. just like a great friend who you know, ended up passing away a, a short while after mm. gave me this message. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, and I listened. I spend a lot of time just trying to be still and listen mm. and then follow. Yep. So when I started teaching, you know, I instantly, instantly fell in love with the awesomeness of the job. Mm. And it was the hardest thing. And I had run, you know, at Olympic hopeful levels. Yeah. Uh, one of the best, you know, runners out here and never had done anything as hard as teaching. <laughs> I'd rather go run 20 miles. Or, you know, <laughs> teaching was so hard. Sure. And I remember my practice demo, you know, the summer where you practice mm-hmm. and teach for America, you have yeah. five, you know, the five week program. And were you in Houston too? No, actually, we were in New York. We were one of the ah, first classes to go to the Bronx. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so I was in the fourth grade in the Bronx at Hunts Point. Mm-hmm. And I remember I prepared my first lesson 
and I was ready to teach it. And the model, you know, the mentor teacher was in the back and, you know, I'm not sure exactly how long it was. Let's say it was, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. The lesson was supposed to be. So I had it all designed and ready. I get up and there's about, you know, 15 kids and I deliver my lesson and then I stand there and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Okay, that took like 10 minutes. And I got 40 <laughs> minutes to go. I was like, what am I supposed to do? And I'm like looking at her and she's looking at me. And I was like, oh my God. And the kids are just like, okay, okay. Mr. Adderley, now what? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know what. And so I really, you know, I did, I fell in love with that awesome responsibility sure. to be prepared and be yeah. ready yeah. for a life, right? Not mm-hmm. for making a you know croissant or making an object not taking away anything from people who you know build with their hands and create Mm -hmm. that is a a great skill but I was like molding a life yeah you know I was like whatever I say this child is going to have to you know it's going to influence who that child is and I said this is too hard I said this is crazy you know, this is this is too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I instantly felt like that class lesson was a failure. And I said, I have to get good at this. I right. have to get really good at this because right. it matters too much. Yeah. And so I went in and I went to the school, Bruce Monroe, as I mentioned, and I started to see that the kids didn't even have Washington. They didn't, even, they, they didn't have resources that I thought all schools should have. Right. Right. So it started going back to my policy work and to the work that I read about and the test score gap and growing up in Philly and all of the, you know, again, these life lessons and journeys started colliding Mm -hmm. and I started to see like, Hey, you know, again, this was me, you know, this was me growing up in Philly, Mm -hmm. you know, at these schools and the, and and I saw myself in the kids and I knew what the, the resources and people and the tools and the sports that were there that got me out. Uh, I wanted to make sure all the kids had all of those things. Yeah. And so with the school didn't have them, I just started providing. And so there was no before school care. I created a before school program. There was no after care. So I created an aftercare program. Mm-hmm. There was no sports. So I started, you know, be coaching the kids in sports. Mm-hmm. It's like everything that I felt that they didn't have, I just started creating. Uh, which I mentioned earlier, being down the street from Howard University really played key into my career and, and, and to your question. So in the classroom teaching, I realized that it was too hard for one person. <laughs> I said, this is ridiculous. I got 25, you know, the 30 mm-hmm. kids in this classroom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just me, sixth graders. Yeah. I had one child who came from Dominican Republic, spoke yep, no zero English. English. And, you know, I knew enough Spanish that I could communicate with him, but I didn't feel like I was qualified or fluent enough to teach this kid in Spanish, but he had such a, we had such a great relationship. He only wanted to be with me. Mm. Uh, so he wouldn't go to his English, you know, learning yes, class. class. He just wanted yeah. to be with me because he's like, you know, Statterly cares about him. Yeah. Uh, so I started to, re- you know, again, realize that yes, the resources and, and all of the, uh, materials that children need in school should be there, number one. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, they need people that, they can build relationships with and talk to and that care about them most importantly. So I went to Howard University with a couple of kids and a, a poster board and said, will you be my mentor? And I signed up a mentor from Howard for every kid in my class. 
and one, changed the dynamic of my classroom because now every week I had these college students who were majoring in all different things would come in and help me teach, help me manage. Nice. And now I had four, five, six people in the classroom instead of just me. Nice. Uh, and, and the kids got excited for it. They came to school more often. They yeah. were more attentive because they might their mentor might be coming that day. So what happened was every kid in the school started asking me, can you get me a mentor? Can you get me a mentor? Mm. So now I started building relationships with kids from, it was a K to six school. Mm-hmm. And so from sixth grade down to, I believe it was fourth. So we have yeah. four, yeah, fourth, fifth, and sixth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I recruited some teachers to work with me. And we, we created a program called Build. And it was a mentorship program. It br- bringing, understanding, impacting lives and dreams. Nice. And that was our mentorship program. And we had over 100 Howard students that signed up. And paired up with all of the kids in fourth to sixth grade. Nice. And that is when the leaders started recognizing that, you know, Kai was doing something different. Mr. Adderley is doing something different over here. Mm -hmm. He actually should be a leader also, Mm -hmm. right? And so the principal would invite me to her building principal meetings. Mm -hmm. And when things happened Mm -hmm. with parents or kids Mm -hmm. or fights or anything, it's like, go get Mr. Adderley, go get Mr. Mm -hmm. Adderley. Uh, And it just so happened that the KIPP schools in Washington, D.C., we're looking at the property to purchase, uh-huh. to build a KIPP school in that building. Sure. The leader was walking through the building, happened to see my teaching and in my, in my, walked past my classroom and paused and said, I hope you're a quick learner. And I said, what? I was like, <laughs> who, who are you? Who are you ta- what are you talking about? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> And she gave me a card and she said, you know, write me, you know, email me. I, I hope you're a quick learner. I think you'd be a great leader. Mm. And I was like, what? What is she talking? Like, I don't even know what she's talking about. I was like, get out of my classroom. I've won the Teacher of the Year Award sure. uh, for Washington, D.C. So, you know, again, I was I was successful at it. Yeah. And so I looked at her card. I looked at Kip. I Googled it, you know, looked it up. And I was like, yeah. oh, well, what is this? OK, you know, and I ended up writing her and I said, well, what is this? Tell me more. And she explained to me that basically they look for teachers who have leadership qualities that they feel they can train to start their own schools mm. mm-hmm. and I said oh okay let's try it right. <laughs> you know? so, like, so I applied <laughs> okay okay uh, so I so I applied you know so I wasn't really searching for a leadership position sure. Sure. I wasn't doing anything other than trying to impact the children yeah. the, the best way I knew how with the, all the resources I had. Yep. And I said, well, this opportunity will give me more impact and me more resources and I can reach more kids. Right. So I applied. Exactly. Yeah. And it was that simple. And, and I think, you know, just like with Teach for America, uh, when I got to KIPP and, and, and people heard my story and heard about the trauma and the difficulty that I went through and persevered through. And, you know, sports being a big part of that and being an athlete and the mindset that an athlete brings to the table, the characteristics that an athlete brings to the table, a student athlete, you know, you learn how to win mm-hmm. at all costs. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I got offered the position, you know, they were like, hey, mm-hmm. you know, and then I remember they said to me, hey, why do you want to open up a school in Brooklyn? Because I, I'm in New York. It was I applied for the region of New York. And, well, no, I'm sorry. So the D.C. leader is the one that proposed this to me. So I thought I was going to go back to D.C. Okay. And then, and then one of the founders of KIPP, actually, they, the, both of the founders put me in a room and said, well, why do you want to, you know, do this in D.C.? And I said, well, I'd do it anywhere. I said, it doesn't matter where I do it. I said, mm-hmm. if I had to pick, I'd do it in Philly because that's where I'm from. 
Okay. I said, but I could do it. You know, the interview was in San Francisco. I said, I could do it here in San Francisco in the parking lot right outside. I said, I don't care. <laughs> you know, and they were like, yes, that's the spirit we love. You know, sure. and they said, well, how about New York? I said, well, let's go. And so that's how, you know, I got to New York to work under or work with, I don't say under, but I worked with uh, David Levin, who was yeah. the founder of KIPP Schools, along with M- Mike Feinberg. And I said, what a great opportunity to be able to work alongside uh, one of the founders. So I and- moved to Brooklyn, moved to New York. Okay. And KIPP stands for Knowledge is Power. Yes. Program. And program. Knowledge is right. Power Program. Because Sorry, it started as an after school program. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So then now you're a school founder. So I'm a school founder. Mm-hmm. And and I remember, you know. That's when we met. That's when we met. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I remember the, uh, you know, it was June. I, I got, you know, the offer to move to New York. And they said, okay, your school's opening next year. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, like you get a year? That's it? Yeah. And so we just got to work. You know, it was yeah. one of, again, one of the hardest things I've done in my life, mm-hmm. um, you know, creating from scratch pretty much along with some of the KIPP model, but creating a school from scratch. But and it's a successful school. It is. I, I drove by recently, uh, okay. but, I, but I visited over the last couple of years as well. And yeah. They are thriving and doing well. And the school now is it's K to 12 now. Right. It was right. middle school that I started, uh, yeah. but it's doing very well there in Crown Heights. Nice. OK, so that was your New York experience. And now I want to talk about a little bit more about why the where. So we like to know how did you come to be living, working and playing where you currently are? And you kind of mentioned that. But there is a whole between this leadership position <laughs> and and coming back. There's a whole yes. story. So tell us the why the where with the circuit that was in between. Yeah, so... Let's see the most direct way to to share this. So when I so you know it goes nicely because when I founded the school, I wanted obviously to create a school that had the characteristics of all the things that I thought I learned in life that helped me to be successful. Uh, so one, I named the school AMP Academy. So it was KIPP AMP A M P Academy, an acronym, and that acronym stood for Always Mentally Prepared. Mm. and it's something that I, it's my go-to, it's tattooed on my shoulder, and it was before the school. A lot of people think, oh, you got this because of the school, and I said, no, this was, actually, this is my way of life, and something I didn't mention, but when I was teaching a way to supplement my money, I started an athletic mentorship program as well, Mm. so when school was over, I started with a buddy of mine, something called AMP Squared, which was Always Mentally Prepared Athletic Mentorship Program. Okay. And so okay. after Where? school, yeah. my buddy, Scott McLeod, shout out to Georgetown again, track. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We started this program and we would go around mentoring kids in sports yeah. and teaching the mindfulness of sports as well. Sure. And teaching them so that, important. yes, you might be a great talent, but actually all of the characteristics that you learn through sports is what's going to help you to be a great person in whatever you choose to be. Yeah. So, you know, I started with the name AMP because also my family and parents taught me that whatever you do, no matter what you choose to do, you show your passion for it. You need to show up. You need to be excited. You need to be amped for whatever <laughs> you are doing. So it was the mental approach, but it was also the enthusiasm and the passion, you know, whatever it is you're in love with, 
those are the things that should come out. Yeah. Uh, so I, so that's what I wanted to teach the kids, how to be amp, you know, how to be mentally prepared, how to be ready. And obviously there was a, you know, I felt that I got that through physical fitness, but I didn't want to be the black guy with the sports school. Right. Mm. So I was trying to figure out a way like what, you know, how does this happen without me saying, hey, this is the sports school. And I and I actually was going to make our school a theme focused on drama because I think acting uh-huh. brings out similar traits. Yes. Uh, and I enjoyed it. I took an acting class at Georgetown. And I think that's part of when I started to realize a bit more about who I was as a person. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I going back to some childhood lessons from my family, I was taught, as I mentioned earlier, we had to run track. Debate was encouraged okay. because you had to learn how to defend yourself with your mind okay. uh, and your words. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that was encouraged was martial arts. Okay. You had to also know how to defend yourself physically. Not that you want to go fight, but you need to, all martial arts, if you start training them, teach you how to get away from danger. If you read the book, The Art of War, you know, it teaches you the way you win a war is by not going to war. So I thought about that and martial arts and I wanted the school to have all these things. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, I grew up watching Bruce Lee. These kids aren't going to care about no Bruce Lee. You know, I'm in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. These kids are from Trinidad and Jamaica and Bed-Stuy, Bedford-Stuyvesant. And I was like, eh, they don't know Bruce Lee. Like, I know, you know, I grew up on Bruce Lee. Um, right. I'm, a, I'm a 70s baby. Right. Kung Fu theater and all that stuff. And so I, re- I really just started <laughs> Right. looking up black martial arts I, you know because i said well, what's a black martial art mm. and came in touch with capoeira realized after going to a class in washington heights that it was also the hardest thing physically i'd ever done in my life it yes. was so hard to finish the class yes also because of the mental approach that you have to have in capoeira because while you're dancing and they're singing and there's you know, so you're, you're singing, you're dancing, there's music going on, and there's people trying to hit you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you have to be mm-hmm. very prepared and very aware. And I said, man, this is all the things I want to teach the kids all wrapped up into one. The mental preparedness, the physical preparedness, the diaspora of Black people mm-hmm. uh, across the world. Mm-hmm. I said, this is it, all wrapped up in one. And yeah. so I became a capoeira guru uh, okay. and just dug into the history and the learnings and I found a teacher who, and a mestre, mestre Jalom Vieira, who had wrote a uh, dissertation about how all public schools in New York City, I think this was in the 70s, his, his vision was that every public school should have capoeira mm. uh, for these for these same reason. And so I had never met him before. These were things that just kind of came to me. And then we, you know, we ended up meeting through mutual friends and, and people. And I had the first ever mandatory capoeira school in the world. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so the kids had to do capoeira 90 yeah, minutes a day. They had that. after school uh, yeah. options to do it. But it taught all of those things that I wanted kids to learn to be yeah. successful. And so, you know, again, to answer your question, it's the journey, right? So now I'm just deep in capoeira, running to school. Things are going great. Kids are, you know, doing well in academics because of um, a lot of the discipline that is taught in yep. martial arts. Yeah. If you can go run for 10 miles, you can sit down and read a book for 10 hours. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot of hand in hand with mm-hmm. education and sports. Mm-hmm. So I did that for years. And as you know, the teacher, principal, superintendent burn is a real thing. Yeah. And, and, and I wasn't necessarily looking for a break, but I definitely know I was getting antsy, maybe mm-hmm. uh, a little burnt out of the same thing every day. And mm-hmm. it's the same issues. 
And, and I started to reflect on, well, what is it that I love about my role, my job that I do? And the thing that I love the most is the coaching aspect. I love coaching teachers. I love coaching kids. I love coaching other folks and sharing with other folks how I do what I do, why I do what I do. Right. And, and so I started to lean towards, and, and again, my mentor started to bring me in and say, hey, you know, share your story, share your story. Father Kemp, you know, bringing me into his classroom, share, share your story, share your struggle. How did you transcend through your struggle? Uh, and I started to realize that once people could start speaking about their struggle, they were able to deal with it better, to cope with it, to transcend through it. So I made that a big focus. Folks at KIPP started to see me as I was one of the first Black males to start a school in the KIPP uh, expansion. And so other Black leaders came to me to talk and say, how do you do this? How do you do this being Black within a system that maybe is not so Black, mm-hmm. even though we're serving Black children? You know, that's a whole nother conversation. Mm-hmm. And there's a great book that just came out uh, on that as well. But anyway, so I started leaning towards the leadership coaching side of things. Okay. And 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 when it was time, and, and again, I just sat back and listened. When it was time to transition, it was because I was invited to Brazil to do some leadership, well, really sharing best practice from the U.S. in Brazil. And on one of my trips, I was offered an opportunity to stay there and continue to share my best practice. Obviously, they were interested in the school because of the Teach for America connection. And then they were blown away when they saw that I put Capoeira to that Mm. and use Brazilian culture to create a high-performing school. So, So when I was sitting in Brazil, in a, uh, in a place called Apodor, on a rock overlooking the ocean, I, I sat there and just said, wow, I was just offered a chance to move out of the United States. Like, I never even thought I would ever, ever do that. Right. It never even crossed my mind once. Yeah. And, you know, my spirit said, yes, this is what you need to do. Okay. You know, so when I think about my journey, you know, you think, how did I get into teaching? How did I get into running a school? How did I move to Brazil? It was the people around me. I kept great people around me that could push me. They weren't people that told me all the things that I wanted to hear. They told me the things that I needed to hear. They were people who were doing things that I thought was cool and I aspired to and I learned from. And these people gave me opportunities. And and I always tell people, you know, be nice to people because when they win that $20 million lottery, you want them to think of you. Right. (laughs) Right? You want to be the, you want to be the person that people think of when great things happen to them. Sure. And so, you know, here I am sitting in Brazil. I thought I was there for a two week trip and got offered a chance to move and live there. Uh And I, you know, and I thought and wrestled with it. I'm embarrassed to say I was debating between uh, moving to Dallas and helping with the KIPP Dallas growth in that region Mm -hmm. and, and moving to Brazil. Uh, and someone say no brainer. <laughs> someone say a no brainer, right? I'm from Philly. Like, I want anything to do with Dallas, <laughs> right? Uh, so you know, and I said yes. Yeah, I remember yeah. just it was an email. It wasn't a contract. It wasn't a you know uh, interview. It was just, hey, you want to come live in Brazil? We'll figure it out. Come down, mm-hmm. help us understand education practice and models from the USA, and we're gonna you know start some schools in Brazil. And I was like, all right, let's do it. Sure. <laughs> and I, I moved. Uh, right. I said, "Can I bring my dog?" And <laughs> you know, they were like, "Yeah, we can bring you. Can bring your dog." I just got my my boy Shango, okay. who who's a Rhodesian Ridgeback, and he was in his. Let's see, he was a little over one years old. And again, 
you know, it really mattered, right? Because there are countries where there isn't reciprocity with animals. Yes, and true. so I could have got offered an opportunity to move anywhere. And if they would have had a situation where I could not have taken my pet, I would not have gone. Mm. Simple as that. Mm-hmm. I would not have gone. And so again, like, you know, life, you kind of, I don't want to say you just go with the flow, but you have to listen to your spirit. You have to reflect and you have to listen as opportunities arise. And if they're, if they're motivating, you know, you listen a little harder, you pay attention, you know? And, and so getting a dog was something I always wanted mm-hmm. and I wasn't going to leave him to go move out the country, something I never wanted. <laughs> mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, and right. it just so happened that you know my dog had a, a, a Portuguese Brazilian name, uh, oh, you know that I named him from yeah. from my capoeira uh, sure. experience, yeah. so, you know, and it was just like yeah, it just all started to blend, right? And people right. Were like, oh, you planned this, you planned it. I'm like, I didn't really plan it, you know. I just kind of set the sails and, yes. and paid attention. Thanks for joining us for part one of my conversation with Kai Adderley. Be sure to come back next week where we'll learn more about Kai's travels and Kai's transition into the sports management world. As always, you can catch us at localcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to check the show notes. They're always so rich and offer so many different resources. Until next time, folks. Bye for now. Bye for now.